Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. We've structured How Story Works conversations to include instructional fix-it interview and FAQ episodes. Today's episode is a fix-it where we watch a movie, discuss it, and use narrative theory to fix it. And today we are going to apply narrative theory to analyze Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right, Dr. Jones. Okay, first of all, um, since you got your doctorate, I have taken great joy in calling you Dr. Jones uh, (laughs) because everybody says Dr. Jones whenever they talk to Indiana Jones. And I've always had that association with you. So it was really fun to be doing Raiders of the Lost Ark with you. Um, It's going to be really, really interesting. Those of you who, uh, if Raiders is a personal favorite, um, and you feel somewhat uh, personally invested and fragile, you might want to skip this episode because we're really going to super fix this movie, which has a lot of problems. I saw this movie when I was a kid. I loved it. Um, came out in 1981, uh, written by Lawrence Kasdan, who's written a lot of movies that apparently I need to go back and revisit. Um, and he wrote or not. Big Chill. <laughs> he wrote a whole bunch. No, but I remember I really like Lawrence Kasdan. There's a lot of his work that mm-hmm. I really enjoy. Um, directed by Steven Spielberg and produced by George Lucas. Um, so this has a lot of like really huge big names on it. This was a big movie. Um, and uh, and it's really interesting kind of, of going into it now. Now, now I, I think that like I loved this when I was younger, but you never really liked this movie, did you? No, I didn't. No. I saw it once as a kid, and I remember mm-hmm. it being, you know, very action packed. Um, and there were parts of it that were very scary, mm-hmm. but it never really appealed to me. Um, and I've never, I haven't gone back and watched it until we yeah. until we did this. Um, yeah. I love the outfit. I would I would cosplay as Indiana oh, yeah. Jones because I would look hot. Oh, that you look amazing hat, in that outfit. You know, with yeah. the boots. Like, mm-hmm. I, that would be great. But <laughs> I've never really liked the movie. And um, now that we've rewatched it, I know why. So ap- apologies in advance to anyone yes. who loves this movie, because I'm going to rip it to tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces. We're going to, yeah, we're going to really take this, uh, take this movie out to the woodshed. So if it is sacred to you, you may want to skip this episode of How Story Works Conversations. But first, before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about how to fix a story using narrative theory. It is very important whenever you are fixing something that you preserve what a story intended to do and what it did well. So you start with the positives and you guard the positives. Also, fixing with narrative theory is not a paint by numbers process. You don't just run through the rules of narrative theory and apply them. No, no dogmatic thinking here. You utilize narrative theory to fix what's broken while preserving what works. And some things may work while not adhering to the standard rules of narrative theory. There's a reason why those work. You can always, you know, spend some time trying to figure that out. Um, but what is important is that you, um, is that you really make sure that you are separating out what's broken from what's not, and then don't touch it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, that's the biggest rule of fixing something with narrative theory is that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's working for you, if it's working in the story, then go ahead and let it be. And that can be a good opportunity to analyze and figure out why does it work, even though it doesn't follow the rules of narrative theory. There will be a reason there that will teach you more in your analysis about how story works. 
Um, all right. So we are going to start this discussion by talking about conflict, which, of course, is this season's uh, special focus in how story works conversations. Um, so, Kelly, um, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about this movie. Um, and okay. I want to see if you, you know, having gone through all of this uh, with me, can kind of figure out where all the conflicts are, what kind of conflicts we're dealing with. Um, so for this movie, what would you say is the central narrative conflict? I would say um, Belloc and the Nazis want the Ark. Indy also wants the Ark. And only one of them can have the Ark. Yes, yes, absolutely. So uh, what kind of uh, just add water is that? Do you know that the name for that? External, mutually exclusive uh -huh. conflict. Yes, with the MacGuffin. Oh, oh, right? the, uh, the, the, hold on, what is the thing? The MacGuffin. The MacGuffin, yes. The MacGuffin yes. is uh, two people fighting over one thing and only one of them can possess it. That is the simplest just add water, you know, kind of conflict that you can have. Um, and that doesn't make it bad. Just because it's simple and just mm -hmm. because it's easy doesn't make it make it bad. Because when you're building your narrative structure, you want that to be something that will hold up everything else that you do. And if everything else that you're doing is fun and interesting and adventure and comedy and romance and all that kind of stuff, then that's that's great. Um, so that's perfectly fine. Um, so yes, we do have an external mutually exclusive conflict. So you got that. Um, and how do you know that what you picked out is the central narrative conflict? Okay, so when I answered this, it led to a question that I'll ask you when we get done with this part. Okay, but it seemed to me that every major escalation in the story leads to that final battle for the arc. Mm -hmm. And so the main conflict begins when Indy agrees to go up against the Nazis to get the Ark. And the story ends, well, the, at the climax, when the Ark mm -hmm. kills all the bad guys. Right. And mm -hmm. the world has changed because now Indy believes in the supernatural. Whereas before, you know, he said he didn't believe in magic. Right. Um, and maybe he's changed a little bit in terms of his identity because technically he failed on this mission, but maybe he saved the world by closing mm -hmm. his eyes. We don't know. It's not entirely clear. Um, and the, the Ark is now in like magical storage where other villains hopefully can't get to it. But we do <laughs> see like the, the change that we mm -hmm. see in the world is related to the Ark. The climax is related to the Ark and like the big escalations are related to the Ark. Right. Right. And if the if the title alone wasn't enough to like yeah, tip you off, Raiders of the too. Lost Ark, right? Um, yeah. That definitely tips you off that that's the source of that conflict. But yes, when we have the climactic moment, right, that resolves that central narrative conflict, which is um, Indy versus Belloc is kind of a secondary antagonist. I'd say Tote, the, the Nazi, is the main yeah. one, um, is the main antagonist. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, that's the end of that yeah. um, of that arc. That's that's what the whole movie is built on yeah it was funny the only thing I remembered about this movie was the faces getting melted off at the end and when yes. I got to that point I was like I knew I remember that yeah that was it yeah that, was that my is only clear memory extremely <laughs> memorable when I was a kid yeah. that was the thing that haunted my dreams um all right so what other conflicts are present um so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out a bunch of scenes and I want you to identify what kind of conflict and now we've talked about a number of different kinds of conflict let's go ahead and do a quick review narrative conflict is what kind of conflict Narrative conflict is protagonist versus antagonist, but not necessarily, it includes the central narrative conflict, but can also 
not be the central narrative conflict. Right. It's goal-based, right? So we have yes. a protagonist with a goal versus antagonist with a goal. So that's how we know it's a narrative conflict. Um, and then a mundane conflict is... Something that is not narrative. So that might be a difference of personality, a difference of philosophy, banter, argument. Mm -hmm. One person wants the house hot, one person wants the house cold. But it's there not, uh, yeah. And false conflict would fit in there too. Mm -hmm. You know, I threw you in the snake pit because you hugged that woman and she was your sister. Um, <laughs> would all be... <laughs> Yes, false conflict is anything, misunderstandings, lies, and secrets, right? Anything that yeah. if you have a, a conversation, it'll get cleared up. So in the scene where Indy grabs the idol, mm -hmm. um, what kind of conflict are we having there? So I said that was scene-level narrative conflict because mm -hmm. it was Indy versus an antagonist of that scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it shows us that Indy is brave and quick on his feet. Yes. Yes. So we actually have, um, we have narrative conflict. Indy has a, um, like when you're talking about that opening scene, right? Indy has a goal. He wants to go get the, um, he wants to go get the idol. The whole place is booby trapped against him, right? So it is basically like the person who set the booby traps against Indy. Indy wins that narrative conflict, grabs the idol, and then Alfred Molina grabs the idol, steals it from him. So then we have that conflict where Indy just wants to get out alive, right? He runs out. He finds that Alfred Molina has, of course, since been killed by one of the booby traps, grabs the idol, runs out, and then gets the idol taken away from him by Belloc. So we actually have like three different kinds of narrative conflict all wrapped up in this one scene, just bouncing um, and escalating on each other. Um, so that's good. Um, also, uh, Indy shows up at Marion's bar. What kind of conflict do we have in that? Okay, so I think we're supposed to read that as romantic conflict. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it, that relationship is so messed up, I don't know that yeah. I can call it romantic. But it right. would be scene-level narrative conflict because it's Indy versus Marion. He wants the artifact. She tells him to come back in the morning. He mm -hmm. doesn't get, you know, she wins. He doesn't get what he wants. Right, right, right. Very good. Yes. So the, we do have a narrative conflict there. Romantic conflict is here are two people who want to be together, but they can't be together. Right. Um, and I'm not sure that we have that at this point because they're not together because she's really furious with him, you know, um, and, yeah. and doesn't want him at that point. Um, but basically, we do have that narrative conflict is that he wants the medallion. She has it. And she's not giving it to him. Right. So in that level, we do have or in that scene, we do have that scene level narrative conflict. Um, so Mary Marian, when Marion pulls the knife on Belloc to try to uh, get away when they've been getting drunk together, she wants to escape. What is that? So that's scene level narrative conflict as well. <laughs> Marion versus Belloc. Yes, absolutely. Um, when Indy finds Marion but leaves her in the tent. Oh, my God. Um, so I was like, OK, this could be subplot romantic conflict of Indy choosing his work over Marion, but mm -hmm. also general human conflict of Indy being a terrible person. Yes. Well, she wants him to take her with him and he leaves her there. Right. And he wants to leave yeah. her there. Okay. So, so technically that's scene level narrative. Conflict. Scene level narrative. Conflict. No, you're okay. absolutely right. You're absolutely okay. right. But they both have they because they have both have conflicting goals. Uh, yes. And you're absolutely right. Also about is that romantic conflict? Because if she still wants him after that romantic conflict is two people who want to be together, but can't. Right. For okay. some reason. Right. Um, and so uh, when you look at Indy and Marion and you think of them, 
be you know like wanting to be together and yet you know we can't like like you always go back to you know romeo and juliet no amount of talking is going to make juliet not a capulet like that's classic romantic conflict they want to be together they can't because she's a capulet and he's a montague um with these two you know i mean they're attracted to each other but they're also constantly furious with each other and this is one of those things where you're actually using them hating each other as being the source of the romantic conflict they like mm -hmm. each other but they can't be together because they hate each other but he's really super hateable you know because yeah. he's really super terrible um yeah. so you know as a romantic conflict i think you could say yeah it's a romantic conflict it's a gross romantic conflict but you know it definitely it could qualify as a romantic conflict but it's uh but yeah, it's gross. Um, all right. So you said that you had some questions about uh, about some of the conflicts and we were talking about today. I did. Um, so mm -hmm. I don't I don't think this is developed enough, which is one of the yes. reasons why I find this movie so boring. Mm -hmm. But is there also an internal conflict within Indiana of his skepticism versus the magic of the arc? I'm not sure that there is much because he's not internally conflicted about it it's only when they open it up that suddenly he has this mystical knowledge you know right. but i think it's i think it's only because he sees like he's heard the tales and when they open it up some stuff starts getting you know starts moving around magical lights are going on and he's just remembering his training and saying close your eyes right yeah. unless i missed it is has was there any point in this where you know, Indy's um, belief in his own knowledge and his view of the world was ever questioned or tested for him. I mean, it, it seemed to me like they were kind of doing that at the end. Like, dude decided to close his eyes for a reason. You don't But not do until that. he saw the but, lights right, coming out of the Right, not until he, yeah, right. was convinced so it wasn't that like, something was happening. Right, it but, wasn't like he was questioning the supernatural i mean he was he was all about you know it's science it's just it's an artifact it's not mystical yeah. or supernatural yeah. or magical but that wasn't a point of of internal conflict where he doubted himself or anything like that yeah during that's the movie true. that at least i that's picked true. up on no i think you're right and i think mm -hmm. that was one of the things that was missing for me because it felt like oh, they absolutely. were sort of doing that and then not doing it mm -hmm. um and we will talk about this in a minute, but there is a missing internal conflict between Indy's responsibility as a professor and his desire for action and adventure that we do not see at all. And we will talk about it. We are but going anyway. to talk about that. We're going to <laughs> but, we are going to set aside a whole section of this yes, to talk are. about the the messed up pedagogy here. Yes. Um, um, but yeah. my actual question <laughs> yes. was, mm -hmm. is the opening scene of Raiders a mm -hmm. prologue or is it narrative? Because it's not about the arc. It's, it's about not. that idol. Mm -hmm. Or is it narratively necessary to establish the conflict between Indy and Belloc to show Indy's heroic badass side before we see him as a professor? Or is it a prologue that's just fun to watch? It's a prologue that's just fun to watch. Uh, it is a prologue. There is It establishes Belloc, but we, we get Belloc later when there's an actual conflict going on. Until mm -hmm. Indy shows up um, to get the medallion from Marion, we don't really have a conflict. Now, it's okay to set up that he's a professor, that he's being called away on this trip. He has to go get the Ark and somebody else wants it because there is that sense of he has to rush out to get the Ark and retrieve it. 
Um, you know, so, I mean, you know, there's, there's that a little bit, but like, yeah, like the conflict really doesn't start until, um, the fire in Marion's, uh, in Marion's bar where we actually see Tote. Tote is looking for the medallion. The medallion is the pre-MacGuffin. It's the MacGuffin that represents the arc, right? So they're chasing after that. Um, and then that starts that conflict of who's going to get the, uh, the the arc first so um so yeah but no it's just a prologue it's just a prologue you could and the the way that you know something is a prologue is if you remove it entirely from the story right do you lose anything you know and i mean aside from the introduction of belloc which by the way we can do you know, mm-hmm. in like at another point, basically what we're getting is, you know, people are like, well, you know, we need to establish, we need to set things up. That's always the argument I hear whenever I tell a writer to cut a prologue. And my argument is if you could do it in an awesome way, you know, without narrative happening, then you can do it in an awesome way with narrative happening. You know, I mean, you could actually have made that scene about getting the medallion for the arc Mm -hmm. that would and played it very like very little different. Like maybe the medallion is inside the idol and that's what he has to do. Like you could have that exact same scene if you just make it about the arc and you make Belloc the antagonist, which is a discussion we're also going to be having. Um, Then you're actually you can still have that awesomeness. You don't have to give it up, but you need to relate it to the main line because otherwise it's just it's just something that's happening and yeah it's fun and it's funny and it's all that kind of stuff but you can still be fun and funny and actually move your narrative and that gives you more real estate to work in your narrative to work in like you were talking about an internal conflict for indie you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't make him any less of this great action adventure guy if he has something internal going on that's absolutely what you want that makes it that much better that would have made Indy somebody we could have actually rooted for and liked aside from the fact that he's Harrison Ford so he's hot you know I mean but that's basically his uh, Indy's greatest quality is that he's played by Harrison Ford yes like Agreed. that's the best Agreed. thing he has going for him. Well, you know, and we've said we're going to tear this movie to, to tiny pieces. Um, and it's funny because I I remember that this came out in the early 80s. Yes. I saw in the notes, this is 1981. Mm-hmm. And in my head, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> right? But that was yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. 40 yeah. freaking years. This movie is almost as old as I am. 40 years (laughs) so like I think it's it's really interesting just in a conversation about conflict in general like there is some some real narrative problems with this movie like what we were just Mm -hmm. talking about with the prologue right the vast majority of my my criticism my problem with this movie are are cultural and not Mm -hmm. yes narrative um and so like I do want to recognize the fact that the movie is a whole lot older than I thought it was. I don't hate it any less, but yes. 40 years is a long time. So. Well, and the 80s are notoriously toxic. Oh, my God. I mean, culturally notoriously wow. toxic. Um, yeah. And uh, and so I think that we can uh, maybe look at ourselves and appreciate how far we've come. We still have a yes. lot farther to go. Um, yeah. But we have made some progress, and so there is that. But, um, but yeah, it's... Um, there's 
there's a, a space to be made for understanding um, a piece of media or storytelling within the context of its time mm -hmm. and acknowledging that, making space for it without allowing that to be an excuse. It doesn't make it okay. You know, it doesn't make yeah. what happens in this okay. Um, but it, it does allow us to have context for it and have compassion for people who may not have known any better. Now we're going to talk a little bit about George Lucas and how George Lucas fucking knew better. <sighs> yes, um, we so we'll have that discussion in just a little bit. Um, but, uh, but overall, like, you know, it, I, I try to have as much compassion as possible. I mean, I look back, I started writing, uh, 17 years ago. That's when I started, uh, writing and publishing. And I look mm. back at stuff that I wrote. And I think, ugh, you know, like I have that moment where I'm just like, pass Lonnie, do better, you know? And the thing is that pass Lonnie is here trying to do better now, right? You know, and yeah. that's all I can do. Yeah. You know, I yeah. can't, like, I can apologize for it if anybody's harmed by it. Um, I can acknowledge that I, I don't like necessarily what I wrote. I didn't do anything this bad. No, um, but there's some things that, that lacked an awareness that I just didn't have when I was writing. I, you know, mm -hmm. I hold compassion for that. I talk a lot about terroir, that what's in the, um, what's in the soil gets in the grapes, gets in the wine, what's in the culture gets in the writer, gets in the writing, you know, and that happens. And, you know, and I'm not interested in holding anybody necessarily, you know, over a fire. Um, at the same time, I do feel like we need to acknowledge the things that are going on. And, oh, we will. But the first step, <laughs> of course, in fixing any story is talking about what the story did well. So we start with what did Raiders set out to do? And I think Raiders set out to tell a fun adventure story with humor and romance. And it it did that. Um, not all of it well, but that's, but there's a lot of that in there. So, uh, what did, what did you see, uh, <laughs> what did you see it set out to do? My generosity did not stretch that far. <laughs> I said, Raider set out to tell a story of toxic masculinity with patriarchy and abuse dressed up as an action adventure with a great costume and awesome music. So all the toxicity would look like fun. And that's exactly what it did. Yeah, that's exactly what it did. I'm... <laughs> I don't know if I would say it set out to do that. I think that's what it did. Um, mm -hmm. I think that ended up being exactly what it did. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't anyway, know. Like I said, my, my, my generous spirit is not that flexible. I know. I get it. Well, and the reason, <laughs> like you have good reason to be pissed off at this movie. I mean, you definitely, yeah. definitely do. Um, yeah. All right. So what in this movie was good? I think that it was funny. I love the snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? It's the closest thing we get to vulnerability from Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. um, that he has this fear of snakes. And then of course, later on gets thrown in a pit of snakes. Um, so that's kind of fun. I think that Indy is a fun is he a fun character I think there are things about Indy that are fun I think that a, a lot of what makes Indy fun is Harrison Ford you know is mm -hmm. the performance um, so I think that, that Harrison Ford is like 90% of what makes Indy a bearable you know forget fun but bearable um, so I think that he's he's got a classic action hero I think that the setup and the idea the concept behind Indy rather than the execution Yes. Um, is really fun. He he lacks weaknesses aside from the fact that he's afraid of snakes. Um, he lacks vulnerability, definitely. Uh, we do have a sense of that in how, you know, completely torn up he is when Marion, he thinks Marion is dead, but then leaves her 
with the people that he thought had killed her. So that kind of undercuts that vulnerability and his feelings about her. Um, uh, so Marion, I think Marion is fun. I, I actually like Marion in the first scene. After that, she becomes kind of an object that gets moved around and possessed by various men. Hate the shit out of that. But I do like her in the bar when she's yeah. drinking and getting the money and then telling Indiana Jones, punching him in the face. Um, all of that stuff I, I like with her. So I think that, again, Marion is a character that has a lot more potential than necessarily the execution allows. Um, so I think that those are positive things. I think the um, the setting, the environment, and the basic idea, um, I think all have a lot of fun potential. Um, did you see anything in this movie that you thought was good? Yeah, I mean, my favorite part is the arc. Both, yes. you know, in purpose at the beginning and at the end. Because, you know, <laughs> magical artifact adventure stories are usually really yeah. fun. Um, mm -hmm. And I do like that. Um, I love Indy's costume. It's fantastic. Yes. I love the hat. Um, the music is great. Yes. Like, I mean, it mm -hmm. is a The music is fantastic. Adventure. I love it. It's so good. It's so well composed. And I like the aesthetic, um, the 1930s aesthetic. I think the visual, the setting for it is neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked Marion a lot when she was owning her own, in her own bar. Yeah. Before Indy shows up and fucks up her life again. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of potential with her. Yes. That, that I did appreciate. I love that moment. I'm your goddamn partner. Like, I love <laughs> that moment. Right. Um, and then it, it all falls apart kind of after that. Is there anything else in this that we haven't mentioned that we liked? Anything else that we liked? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think mm -hmm. I've covered everything. It feels like a very thin. Yeah, it's thin a very ground thin, there. Thin. Yeah, I like the concept. And I like, I like the, the concept. Yes. So I think that there's a lot of fun. I like the, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of fun to be had here. Um, mm -hmm. It is unfortunately really super broken. So now we get into what's broken. So now we can, you know, take off <sighs> the, uh, the brakes and, um, and go ahead and go into all of these things. Um, okay. So I'm going to start with what it is that infuriated me. A lot of things bother me about this movie, but this infuriated me the most is, um, according to the actual text, Indiana was 27 years old when he had an affair with the 15-year-old Marianne. And we know that this is text because she says, I was a child, I was in love, I was 15, it was wrong and you knew it. So we get this in the actual text that not only did Indiana know that it was wrong, but the people who were writing it know that it was wrong, you know, that she was a child, she was in love. So he is a statutory rapist um, and a pedophile. And this is our hero. Um, and also, I did a little research on this because I was trying to figure out whenever I'd watched the movie before, I knew that he had been a student of her father's and mm -hmm. um and that he had been older than her but i had somehow thought he was like an undergrad student and even so even if he was 19 and she was 15 still not okay um anybody who's had a 15 year old child in their house knows that that is a child you know yeah um and and not okay but like something that like you know 19 and 15 especially in the 30s uh, you know you can kind of squeak by as it's still being gross 27 27 is so far beyond anything you can possibly squeak by and like whistle past. Um, 
But to make it worse, uh, according to uh, Looper, the website Looper, during the original Raiders of the Lost Ark story meetings, George Lucas proposed that Indy, and this is a quote, could have known this little girl when she was just a kid, had an affair with her when she was 11, end quote. After Steven Spielberg protested, Lucas decided that, quote, 15 is right on the edge. Once she's 16 or 17, it's not interesting anymore, end quote. And that comes from the transcript of a story conference in 1978. And that is fucking horrifying. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I don't have words. Like, and yeah. not just, not just rubber stamping that kind of abuse. Yeah. Rubber stamping the appeal of that kind of abuse, of abuse. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is almost even more disgusting. But between the two of them, Steven yeah. Spielberg and George Lucas have shaped a huge amount of mm-hmm. culture and experiences and childhood movies. So with that amount of power yeah, coming in with this kind of mindset is so egregious and so disgusting and so horrific. I, 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 what do you even do with that? You know, I, how, and the thing is, I was a kid when I watched that. I was yeah, a young girl when I watched this movie. And what this movie is telling me is that a 27-year-old, you know, when you're 15, you don't know enough. You know, and when this is what you're told, that this is okay, that this is, this is our hero. When your hero does something like that and there are no consequences in the text for it, aside from her being mad, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she's um, not even that mad because she signs up to that go mad. with him. And yeah. You know, whatever. And later just, on, it's... and then she's having fun with him. And later on, she's kissing his boo-boos. You know? Yeah. I mean, my God, this whole thing. And then, and then. And then to have it followed up from Indy, instead of shame and regret and horror at what he's done, it's, I did what I did. You don't need to be happy about it, but maybe we can help each other out now. Yeah. Um, no. So no. The, the level to which I find this um, infuriating and heartbreaking at, what that kind of thinking in the culture did not just to me, but a lot of, you know, women um, Mm -hmm. and people who identify as women, you know, um, how that made us feel about ourselves and our bodies and our autonomy and everything is just, it's so fucking heartbreaking. Like what that does to you as a, when you're a kid and you don't know when you're, when your culture has this movie that everybody says is so great and everybody loves and you go and it's funny and Harrison Ford is playing this character and, and there's no sense that it really is wrong. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's just awful. I mean, it's, it's Mm -hmm. just, yeah and and it's you know it's right there in the text I was 15 and his response Mm -hmm. is get over it like yeah I I I don't even know so yeah yeah yeah, we have a child abuser who left a woman tied up in a tent with Nazis and his only vulnerability is a fear of snakes I'm like really this is what we hold up as the great American hero deep personal sense of shame in yeah. which case, you never touch this woman again. You know what you don't get to do is ever get near that woman again. No. You know? No. 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 Yeah. yeah. It's awful. It's awful. Mm-hmm. And and then I had, like, in addition to, so, like, yes, yes and, <laughs> with mm-hmm. Indiana yes. Jones being a terrible person, I had I had two two other things, one of which, eh, 
I can let go. The other which I, I will set on fire. So what is the Indiana Jones version of the glittery hoo-ha, right? Because here's this guy. Who should we, we explain is, what the glittery hoo-ha yeah, is? Yeah, you explain because okay. it's one of my favorite Lonnie things. Well, it's actually not a lot of things. It's this, I got off of television without pity uh, many, many years ago um, when they were talking about, I used to watch Days of Our Lives and I would go on television without pity and look at the Days of Our Lives um, board there. And they would talk about the glittery hoo-ha, which was this thing where a woman would be so unbelievably stupid, you know, and just like uh, dumb and get into the worst situations and always make terrible, terrible decisions. Um, but the hero would love her no matter what, no matter how stupid she was, when he had to get her, you know, out from the microwave where she had somehow trapped her hair in the door and she couldn't get out on her own, when, you know, all this kind of, and it's just because, and the thing is, they they said it's the glittery hoo-ha, one dip and you're done. Like, once he has sex with her, that's it. No matter what stupid thing she does, he is always going to love her and be enamored with her no matter what. So that is the glittery hoo-ha. So we have okay. a bit of a kind of a glittery hoo-ha uh, situation right? with- uh, with know Indiana Jones. what this is right mm-hmm. so here's this guy who's a terrible person yes. but he's brilliant and he's brave he's cool and calm he's ruggedly handsome he has no accountability or guilt or shame he has perfect right. coordination knowledge of every trickster booby trap that has mm-hmm. ever been set and the ability to dodge every dart and bullet and I was like wait is that a glittery Batman and then I had to say I'm just kidding Joshua Unruh I'm kidding I'm kidding Batman has a conscience but I had to make the joke like what do you even call that? So that was yeah. annoying. Mm-hmm. But here's the other problem. So in in the levels of, of hideousness, right? Child yes. abuse wins. But what comes second, Bonnie, <laughs> is that Indiana Jones is a terrible goddamn teacher. <laughs> so we get this, this tiny scene of him like playing professor, which is apparently a part-time hobby. And yes. his classroom is full of mostly young women who are drowning in lusty sighs over him and writing love notes on their eyelids. And let's just pause there for yeah. a second. Because mm-hmm. if you are trying to blink your way into bed with your professor, you know what you are not doing in class? You are not <laughs> learning. And Indiana does seem taken aback by the I uh-huh. love you eyelids, but he doesn't address it and a good teacher would address this appropriately and kindly but also immediately and appropriately so -hmm. this shit drives me crazy there's a globe (laughs) on his desk this tiny little academic prop Mm -hmm. but what is indiana gonna do hold it up really high and zoom in so that huge lecture hall can see where he's pointing what the hell and then does he only wear glasses when he's teaching is he Clark Kent? I don't understand <laughs> what they're doing in this classroom scene. But then what happens to Indiana's class when he takes off for all these adventures? Mm-hmm. Is there a sub? Is there a TA? Does he have lesson plans in place to cover his absence? Who is advising his students when he's gone? If a student needs help with the course material, who's helping them? Who is submitting final grades and holding office hours? Where is the pedagogical concern is what I'm saying. Not okay. I love it. I love it. Okay. First of all, like I love when you get pedagogically like offended at that very, very deep level. Bad pedagogy, of course, is what will send Dr. Kelly Jones off um, and kick her out of any movie ever. Um, I do have to say 
for the sake of narrative theory that uh, the fiction is not answerable to reality. Um, um, at the same time, you are right on absolutely every front and there should be at least something in there saying so-and-so can cover my class. You've taught this before you can handle it or it's spring break, yeah. you know, and I'm Clearly going the last day. day of the semester. I would have no some problems. kind of something would have been fine. It's right? fine. Exactly. <laughs> <sighs> Brought to you by the people that get pot pigs for Christmas and then go on vacation and forget they have a pet at home. Like it's the same <laughs> mindset. I cannot. <laughs> Stand it. <laughs> and you know that fucker probably has tenure too yeah and i'm yeah. just i'm so pissed off oh um, well, he does have tenure that's why he can just go running off go anytime wherever he wants, he wants. Right? oh my god i was so mad i was so mad i was like right, yeah we're not <laughs> fine we're just not even addressing it oh my god yeah so i hate him a lot yes mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the bad teaching is is only it's part just, of that yes it's mm-hmm. just there um and then you know i wanted to like marion like mm-hmm. i like marion as a person yeah but with the exception of drinking people under the table which i respect right. um mm-hmm. and trying to pull a knife on a dude and like asserting herself as as partner yeah she is abused subjugated objectified and mistreated for this entire movie yeah and i'm your goddamn partner would be great if she actually had agency and Indy mm-hmm. actually respected her as a person yeah. and she wasn't a victim or a damsel or a prop or a possession for the whole damn movie. And, and mm-hmm. this is another question. Yes. Who, who brings a prom slash wedding gown mm-hmm. to the desert with lingerie and, and heels, white uh, gowns and slips yeah. with heels to the desert there are more white gowns in the nazi suitcases than in my entire closet exactly why the hell i don't dress her up like that and all and all perfectly in her size right yeah Yeah. it's so i don't even know yeah i I don't know and so like and then the ending is not satisfying so the bad guys get their faces melted off so there's that yeah Mm -hmm. but indy has abused this woman you know he started abusing her when she was 15 he mm-hmm. cost her thousands of dollars. He wrecked her bar. He got mm-hmm. her kidnapped multiple times, yes. tied up against multiple poles, thrown mm-hmm. into a snake pit, almost killed by face-melting arc ghost. And yeah. she wants to kiss his boo-boos and buy him a drink. And still at the end, we never find out who took over Indy's class or if the man even has a grade book. So fuck <laughs> this movie. <laughs> This movie, you know, I have a phrase that I use a lot about specifically made to delight me. Like there are certain <laughs> things that are just specifically made to delight me. I think yeah. this is an instance of specifically made to piss off Dr. Jones. And oh, yeah. ironically, this is the movie that gave us Dr. Jones. I know. This I is know. the movie that everyone everyone says to me, no time for love, Dr. Jones. And I'm like, no time <laughs> for fucking bad pedagogy. That is what we don't have time for. Right. <laughs> Right. And, you know, while we say this, let's just not only talk about uh, how horrible the racism is all over Indiana Jones. The ethnocentrism Mm -hmm. is dripping off of every scene. We have a white man playing an Egyptian in Salah. Um, That's uh, Jonathan Rhys Davies, who I love as an actor. Like, you know, I love him, but he's playing an Egyptian man. Um, Every time we see any of the people from these lands that we're going to, from these lands that gave us the arc that gave us the culture that we have right um everybody is treated like 
just so many bodies to pile up or to, you know, put to work digging mm-hmm. through the sand to find us our stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awful. And every time I say Dr. Jones, I feel bad because I think that comes from another racist uh, depiction in, um, in Temple of Doom, right? No Time for yeah. Love, Dr. Jones. Dr. Is, Jones. is that in this one or is that in, no, is it's that in short Temple round? Doom. I think in it's Temple, Temple of Doom. Doom. I've only right. seen it. So like these once. are things that culturally like are in the culture and I find myself saying it and I'm like, wait a minute, that's got a racist, you know, that's a horribly racist depiction. All of it's racist. All of it's terrible. I yeah. like calling you Dr. Jones. It's really fun. And I am Dr. Jones. Yeah. So it's fun. You we'll are just, Dr. Jones. Will, we will get to our solution in just a minute. You're the better Dr. Jones. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. We will. Yes, we will fix it. But I just want to say like all of it. There's so much in this that is just so unbelievably infuriating. It's infuriating in the way it depicts everybody, you know, um, and anybody, especially anybody who is not white, anybody who is not white, straight male, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, everybody um, basically gets the short end of the stick in these movies. And it's really, really awful. Um, The climax at the end is a big problem. Um, We have Indy making a choice. Right. We have this moment. He's going to shoot the bazooka. He chooses Marion's life over the arc, which is stupid because there is nothing keeping these guys from killing everyone. These, they're going to kill him anyway. Like and, and this is your question. Why didn't they? I don't know. Why didn't they just shoot both him what? and Marion in the head right then and there? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Why didn't and they the thing kill him? Is, Right. I don't know. But his choice should be what ends the conflict. It should be his skill, his competence that like ends this conflict. But instead, during the big moment, he's passive. Everything would have played out exactly the way that it played out, whether he had been there or not. The only thing he did was save him and Marion, which is good. But that wasn't what the the conflict was about. He didn't solve the conflict. He just closes his eyes while the bad guys take themselves out. He did not take them out. He didn't say, hey, why don't you open up that and just see what's inside because you never know because he believed and knew that the magic was going to kill them if he had said open the ark up now right as a strategy so that he knew he could close his eyes and get Mary to close her eyes that they would survive and then they would have it that would have been fine that would have mm-hmm. been his choice taking the bad guys out resolving the conflict but instead he's just there he's just passive and that's it you know yeah yeah so the climax is is stupid and that's poorly done um the antagonist is also bad um because we've got belloc and tote uh both of whom are blocking indy at various points belloc is personal they're old rivals and tote is just a a nazi you know just a standard villain not i mean he's bad he's creepy but he's just Mm -hmm. this guy you know yeah well and belloc is more interesting as an antagonist yes um you know Indy is such an asshat that I don't see a whole lot of difference between them. But the movie right. tries to compare and contrast them and, yeah. and literally present Belloc as the dark and Indy as the light. But if Indiana mm-hmm. Jones is a hero of light, then the world is well and truly doomed. Um, yes. But I think they were they were trying to make that narrative case, mm-hmm. um, you know, in there pretty explicitly, like almost yeah. too explicitly. Yeah. But then Belloc is by far the more interesting antagonist. Um, And I had a thought about the climax just very quickly. Again, trying to keep in mind, this movie is actually 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching it as a child, and it was very scary, and people's faces melted off, and that stayed with me. No, I remember that being hugely scary when I was a kid. Yeah, but the ending of this movie is so visually 
overwhelming. Like I mm-hmm. had never seen graphics like that in yeah. a movie. I don't think before mm-hmm. I saw Raiders. Um, you know, it was so different. It was so unexpected um, mm-hmm. that those effects and kind of like that visual experience all the way through can really, you know, help you not see some of right. the other terrible stuff that's going on in this, mm-hmm. especially if that's your first time seeing that kind yeah. of, you know, it's it's a huge visual experience. Yeah. Um, so watching those effects now is funny, you know, but mm-hmm. I remember being hella impressed with that yeah. when I was a kid. It was terrifying. At the time. It's yeah. terrifying. But at the time, that was really something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's still a bad climax, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Because it, it, Indy doesn't do anything. He He mm-hmm. decides to close his eyes. And the yes. arc takes everybody out, and that's all there mm-hmm. is to it. All right. Is there anything else that we want to address before we get into fixing Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? I think we've Have we missed it to anything? The ground. I think so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead. Let's go in. This is how we fix it using narrative theory. Uh, first, you know, uh, no raping children. That isn't actually part of my narrative theory. It shouldn't have to be. Um, I think this is part of being a fucking human and having some decency. So uh, also stop putting Marion in white dresses that are eventually just down to the underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, you made Karen Allen run around in the desert in fucking heels. And everyone who did that is going straight to hell. So yes, that's yes. the end of that. Flames on the side exactly. of my face, but <laughs> but I have hope because mm-hmm. story expert Lonnie Diane Rich, please rewrite this movie. Okay. All right. So here's what we do. Now I'm going to tell you all the things that I'm going to change. Anything else that I'm not addressing is going to basically probably run through about how it did. Um, first of all, he and Marion were the same fucking age when they met. So she was also, she was like 25 and he was 27, fine, whatever. Um, And when he chose between her and the work, he chose the work breaking her heart. That's why she's mad at him. Not Mm -hmm. because he raped her as a child, but because he chose the work over her. And so that's going to be something with him. And that's also going to speak to his internal conflict, which is that he is comfortable with the work and with things that he can intellectually understand. And emotional stuff is not his strong suit, right? Okay, so we are taking out the fact that he raped a child and then said, oh, get over it, right? That is not in this movie. All right. Second, Belloc is Indiana Jones with slightly fewer boundaries. That's where we start. So Belloc is dark. Indiana is also a little dark. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have these two who are basically doppelganger antagonists, which is really, really fun. Doppelganger antagonists are two, an antagonist and a protagonist who differ basically for one fatal choice, right? Mm. Um, but they're essentially the same and they reflect them. They reflect each other back at each other. And so when Indiana looks at Belloc, he sees the dark part of himself and wants to be better, which is really super important that we have to have a light side to Indiana Jones, which we are kind of missing. Um, yeah. So we do that and we make him the antagonist, right? Maybe he works for the Nazis, fine. But Belloc is the antagonist because that is personal, especially if these two have been chasing each other around the globe, you know, one-upping each other with various different artifacts. And if Indiana is suffering some kind of indignity at this point because of Belloc, right? So we know that Belloc matters to him, that this is important. Um, So, you know, Belloc is after this arc, uh, not for the knowledge, or the respect or what it means culturally, but for the glory and the money. So Belloc needs to be all about the ego. And I think that so does Indy, at least in the beginning, there should be very little daylight between Belloc and Indy. So that's how we start this out. It is 
personal. Um, so at some point, Belloc interacts with Marion and he starts to charm her. Indy sees himself in the way that Belloc treats Marion, something that he is trying to you know, basically possess, which is what maybe Indy did with Marion, not allowing himself to really feel things for her. Seeing Belloc do that to Marion, try to do that to Marion, can reflect on Indy and he can have a long moment of deep personal fucking reflection on what kind of person he is and how he treated her and how maybe she deserved better, right? So Belloc should also, during one of the darker moments, say something very close to something that Indy says in the beginning so that he's repeating something that Indy says. So he is actually reflecting Indy back at himself. So if Indy Mm -hmm. says something when he's going for the arc later on, we see Belloc saying that same thing, like, you know, I want it for this reason or whatever. Um, So Belloc needs to hold that mirror up to Indy show him what he can be what he will become if he continues on the path that he's on Marion also holds up a mirror to Indy and shows him the man that he can be if he gets the fuck over himself and learns what's important also Marion is not throughout the run of this story just an object to be moved around she's actually there because Indiana Jones destroyed her bar and he owes her fucking money and she's gonna mm-hmm. get it okay so when Bella kidnaps Marion Indy believes she has died and when he has the choice to save her he leaves her just like he did in the movie we need him to have that moment of darkness but we need to acknowledge that's a moment of darkness and we need to hold him accountable for that moment of darkness later right he has to Mm -hmm. believe that she's going to be safe though that she's with Belloc and Belloc is not going to hurt her that Belloc is just you know tying her up or whatever to get to Indy right So he makes that choice. Um, So Marion then will escape from Belloc on her own and find Indy and punch him in the fucking face because he deserves it. And this is a moment where she holds him accountable for what he has done to her. And he realizes how the way that he treats her and the way that he's been with her is is a bad thing, you know, and how that is him not being able to deal with his own emotional connection with her. Um, So she also needs to be there for the arc and for her money not Indy. She believes in the Ark's importance. It meant everything to her father. So this is personal to her because of what it meant to her father, who is going to be dead, right? I don't know if Abner is dead. I think he's dead in the movie too, in the movie the way that it is. But that she lost her father, that the Ark was of personal significance to him. She's there for her money, but she's also there for the Ark. Um, And if working with Indy is the only way to save it, then she'll do that. She also needs to believe in the magic of it. This is where we get, between Marion and Indy, we get her talking about the magic So we see Marion on one side, understanding the magic, understanding the cultural significance and pulling Indy towards that more emotional, more internal, more intuitive, spiritual, you know, kind of self. Whereas Belloc is all about the money and the glory and, you know, and 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 very much being that kind of intellectual side, emotionally disengaged that Indy also has. So Indy has these two sides reflected and that reflects his internal conflict and, you know, inside. Do I believe in the magic? magic? Do I actually take the risk of being vulnerable by believing in something that may not be true? Or do I go for the money and the glory and all the stuff that I can actually put my back up against? Um, So she needs to not forgive him. She needs to not think that his bullshit is cute. And she needs to demand that he be a better person. Also having some sort of uh, moment here where she says, when we were younger, I saw something in you that I thought you had. But now I just see that you're nothing. You're a suit. You know, that she doesn't respect him because of what he's become. Because he's becoming more and more like Belloc, right? Um, So we have, you know, more adventure. Belloc traps them in the Well of Lost Souls. That's where all the snakes were. Um, 
Um, they escape. They go on the boat. Um, instead of her, at this point, tending to his whiny, fragile male boo-boos, they have a conversation here, and he fucking apologizes. And they were going to have, they should have an argument here, again, too, about the magic, where he starts to kind of bend. In this moment, he should show her something of himself that shows that maybe he is actually worthy. Maybe there is something going on inside of him. You know, they have a discussion about why they broke up, that he's always choosing the work over her. Um, you know, and maybe in this moment, he apologizes to her. He's recognizing this, but he tells her what he believes to be true. He's always going to choose the work. I'm always going to choose the work. The work is what matters to me because he is too afraid of what happens when you have that emotional connection with somebody. So we see him struggling with that a lot here. And what he says to her is, I'm going to choose the work. Just know that, you know, so that he's being honest with her at least, or at least what he believes to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so then we have Belloc comes on the boat. He takes Marion in the ark, knowing he needs Marion for the ritual because she knows the magic. Um, Indy goes after her. He gets on the sub. Same thing as the movie. Uh, the next significant change we have is the moment when he aims the rocket launcher at the ark. This is his big moment, his chance to choose her over history, over his glory, over his money. Right. He is actually choosing her. So he chooses her. He shoots the rocket. He pulls the trigger. Right. And in the moment, Marion is shocked and she will even shout no, because she is her father's daughter. She's no goddamn coward. She'll get herself out of this mess. And it is the fucking Ark of the Covenant. Right. In that moment, he pulls the trigger, but the rocket launcher doesn't go off. Mm -hmm. So now we have a question. Is that the magic? Is the Ark protecting itself? Right. So maybe we have some hint of this earlier, maybe there's a thing where she, where Marion says the Ark will protect itself because that's mm -hmm. what it does. That's how it's gotten this far. And Andy's like, that's fucking ridiculous. You know, if I blow a rocket launcher after this, at this thing, it's going to explode. Right. So then here's this moment where the rocket launcher does not go off, despite the fact that Andy chose that it would, right. He was going to blow up the Ark and save and use that to save Marion, choosing Marion over the work, especially after he had just told her he would always choose the work. Right. So he's having this moment now he has to question himself is it magic is the ark protecting itself that needs to be something that shakes him to his core that maybe the world is more mystical is more magical than he ever believed that it could be and that he doesn't fucking know everything right mm -hmm. um so anyway they take indy they kidnap marion um they take them because they need them because they need marion to do the magic and marion says if you hurt him i will not do anything you're gonna have to kill me and you're not gonna be able to open your ark right so while in captivity together he and marion talk she presumes that he knew that the rocket launcher wouldn't go off and that he was bluffing this is all part of your plan i knew you would choose the work over me because I think part of her isn't going to want to believe that he actually genuinely would choose her because that puts mm -hmm. her in a vulnerable situation. God knows this guy's done enough to break her heart. <laughs> she doesn't need that shit anymore. Um, but he tells her no. And she says, what happened? And he says, I don't know. Maybe it protected itself. And we have this an idea that he mocked when she brought it up earlier. He's actually, you know, kind of thinking about now. So this is a moment where she is shocked. You know, she is shocked to see him genuinely considering all this stuff. Um, but they're out of time. Belloc shows up. Belloc comes in to get Marion, makes a big show of dragging her out. 
indie protests. Um, and Belloc pretends that he just had this idea, you know, but he was really using Marion as bait for Indy. Belloc asks Indy to help him fake the magic, right? Because Belloc doesn't believe in the magic either. He's just doing this to put on a show for the Nazis. So Belloc promises that he will let Indy and Marion go free. But Indy, Indy knows that Tote, this bad Nazi, is going to kill all of them as soon as the demonstration is over, whether there's magic or not, right? Mm-hmm. So Marion argues that they won't need to fake anything. The Ark is going to kill them all if they open it and perform the ritual so we have this moment of knowledge that when they open the ark it is going to kill everybody marion represents magic belloc represents cynicism right so uh belloc is like whatever but indy is like yeah maybe you know so in earlier times we saw that both belloc and indy would have made fun of marion for that belief but indy is like starting to believe it too um so he tries to talk belloc into escaping with them but belloc refuses to leave the ark and his money and his glory and believes for some reason that the nazis are going to keep all of their promises if he delivers a magical <laughs> arc. Um, so Indy agrees to help, but only if Belloc sends Marion away first and Belloc agrees. So Indy watches as Marion is dragged away, furious and cursing at him the whole time. She's screaming not to do the ritual. It will kill them all. He's an idiot. Yada, yada, yada. While this, you know, um, guy is just dragging her off in a Jeep, right? So we get to the climax. Indy has figured out how to create some magical effects with some explosives and whatnot that they've got around this camp. He tells Belloc what to say for the ritual to make it look good. Meanwhile, he's setting something pitiful up that might blow up enough to distract the Nazis so that he can get away. Um, And so right now, Indy's still not sure. He's not sure if it's magical. He's not sure what he believes, but he's unsure. You know, he's he's basically trying to think about what he can do in either situation. So they perform the ritual. The lights start happening. Belloc is watching the light show inside the Ark and gives Indy an impressed look because he thinks that Indy did it. But Indy is freaked out because, no, that's not what he did. He did not do that. <laughs> this is not his, his stuff, right? So at this exact moment, this Jeep comes roaring into the clearing. Marion screeches up wearing the outfit and carrying the gun that the soldier who dragged her away had been carrying. She shoots a couple of soldiers who are there with the the Nazis and then holds the gun on Tote, the big Nazi, and tells Belloc to shut the Ark now. Belloc dismisses her. He ignores her. He tells her to take the gun off Tote because Tote is the guy who's going to give him all the money, right? So the Ark starts acting up. Belloc is entranced and impressed with Indy. And then Indy says, I did not do that and marion says close your eyes to everyone close your eyes indy looks at marion he looks at belloc he looks at tote then back at marion she pulls him aside and says god damn it just trust me just this once just believe right close your eyes and he trusts her he makes a choice closes his eyes he and marion hold on to each other the magic of the art kills both belloc and tote Um, And when he and Marion open their eyes again, it's just them and the Ark, and that's it. Back at home, Indy meets with the dudes. He apologizes for not being able to find the Ark. He and Marion were lucky to make it back as it was, blah, 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 right? And he is completely humiliated. He gets no glory. He gets no money. And all these government guys are like, what the fuck is wrong with you, right? (laughs) Outside, he's walking down the steps when he sees Marion. He walks up to her. Um, They haven't clearly seen each other since that day in the desert. Um, He starts to ask where the Ark is. He gave it to her for safekeeping. He sent it with her. And she tells him that she's never going to tell him that. He clearly cannot be trusted. Um, (laughs) All he needs to know is that it is safe, it's hidden, and it's secret. And he says, you came all the way here to tell me that? And she says, no, you also owe me five grand. And that (laughs) is how we end that fucking movie where she is going to get her money from him one way or the other. 
And that is it. Yeah, that is so fun. And like, you also owe me five grand is my favorite part. (laughs) And I want that to be a thing, right? So like, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you yell, you also owe me five grand, like whatever. (laughs) Like, for this to become the the cultural phenomenon that it should be, because it's so good. But I'm like, I'm listening, I'm nodding, I'm nodding. Okay, so then I had a moment of pause for a second. This is not in our script, by the way, y'all. I'm throwing Lonnie under the bus. (laughs) <laughs> so I heard myself say, oh, hell yeah, to something. And then I was like, oh, wait, maybe not. Oh, what is it? So we had in here that when Marion escapes and she finds Indy, she punches him. And like yes. I, immediately I was like, yes, she does. And I thought, oh, wait, what does that say about me that I was so happy about that? Because I'm like, violence is not the answer. And then are violence we dis- is not the answer. Violence is not the answer. And then is the implication there that it's funny because she can't really hurt him because she's a girl? Oh, no. The implication there is that I'm still mad at him for raping her when she was 15, even though I took yeah, okay. that out of this version. I was still mad at him, too. That's why I cheered when you said she punched him. This is him. why you but need this is the revision. Right. Yes. Right. In the but rewrite, I did catch does myself she punch him? going. Okay. But also, oh. like, it's, doesn't she punch him in the face after he left her to die? After he I left mean, and I found would, her and left her. But I'm her. not a great person. Does she just, have to I, be a perfect person? Does no, she have she to be? Not. I mean, Marion is pretty tough, right? Marion okay, is kind of punchy. I hate the trope of, oh, it's cute when a woman hits a man because she can't hurt mm-hmm. him because of her weak little floppy girl arms, right? Um, right. I actually really don't like that. Um, I In this instance, and, and violence is not the answer, yada, yada, yada. In this instance, I would say I'm okay with it. Um, I mean, the reason I put it in there is because I'm still mad at Indy and I want him to get punched in the face. Um, yeah, me too. But he left her to die. Um, and she is pissed and the two of them are on, uh, are on a level and are part of a, um, you know, like, and I don't mean culturally as like, it's the 1930s, but I mean like culturally as these are rough and tumble out in the middle of the wild kind of people. Yeah. Um, it felt like it fit her personality, like the good parts of Marion from the movie, Right, that, you know that we had to or work the parts with. that I we liked. Like, I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't make her. Uh, the The thing that's important is with stuff like this is that you don't rubber stamp it, you know, as the like that that it's okay for a girl to hit a guy or that we're playing it up with it. It's so cute because she can't hurt him with her little girl arms, right? Right. And maybe later she apologizes for hitting him in the face. You know? Okay, then like I'm maybe- totally good with it. Right. Like if she apologizes for for hitting him in the face, if we have an acknowledgement within the text that that's not okay, right? At the very end, Mm -hmm. when she saves his life and she says, look, I'm sorry I punched you. Close your fucking eyes. Right. And then we get to the end and she says, you still owe me five grand. Like, that's perfect for me. I'm good. I just, I caught the, the... Yeah. I wanted him to get punched because I'm mad at him within myself. And I was like, oh, wait, maybe we should. Wait a minute. Maybe that's wait not right. Minute. See, this yeah. is, it's important to have those discussions, though. Because the thing is, is that your characters do not have to be perfect, right? Yes. Your characters do not do her. They shouldn't be perfect. They shouldn't do everything right. They should do things wrong, right? It's just that when they do things wrong, the text should not rubber stamp those things as though they are okay. When we have Indy say, uh, I did what I did, get over it. Right. Um, The text itself is taking his side and rubber stamping that and saying that she is overreacting to what he did to her. And when she kisses his boo-boos later, the text is saying 
she was overreacting. Look, she's having a great time. She thinks he's adorable and is totally into him. And it's fine because she wanted him, right? Um, so the text is saying that as long as what your character is doing is something that we're not rubber stamping as okay in the text, mm -hmm. um, then I think that it's okay that your characters aren't perfect. Um, yeah. But I think that if you have a character, you also have to think about the dramatic weight of certain things. Mm -hmm. The dramatic mm -hmm. weight of raping a child is huge. Um, and that is something that we don't just get over. Um, had they, you know, like in this version, she's 25, he's 27, they have an affair and he leaves her because he chooses the work over her. And it was kind of shitty because they were in love, yada, yada, yada. That's kind of shitty. Right. And she yeah. can be mad at him for that. And that's OK, you know, for her to be mm -hmm. mad at him for that. Um, and then that's enough because kind of shitty versus um, child abuse and pedophilia, like these have yeah. different dramatic weights. Oh, we could fix the academic part too. So like, yes, in the oh, beginning. fix the academic part. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, cause he's not a professor. He's a researcher. So like he's, uh -huh. he doesn't have pedagogical responsibilities cause he cannot handle, okay, but he does yes. publish and he does get yes. grants. I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so when they were first dating and he chose the work over her, he also published an article of their work and he listed himself <gasps> as the lead author. Oh. And so she is, it's not just that he chose the work over her because we have the right to do that in a relationship, but he listed himself mm -hmm. as the lead author on a paper that was mostly her work. So she is entitled <gasps> to hate him. And then at the end, when she says, you still owe me five grand motherfucker. He says, yes, you're right. I, I would like to submit this paper, though, while we're talking about it. And, and they're going to pay us, and I will give you that money, and I have listed you as the lead author. How do you feel about this, and are you willing to check my citations? Then I'm great. <laughs> it's a okay, perfect see, ending. Here's why I don't like that for this, because that makes me hate him so much. Like, More? so much. Stealing right? her work. Like, I don't know if I can forgive that. I can forgive him he didn't choosing steal the work it. over her. Yeah, he didn't steal it. He if just he, listed If he published it first. and did not cite her and no, no, pay no. her. He, they, they were both authors, but he listed himself first. Because okay. in academia, the order of the authors is important. So it should have been uh -huh. her and then him. And he listed it him and then her. Yeah, that still makes so me So now he has learned his fucking... <laughs> but she has... See what I mean? We can hate him for better reasons. Oh, right. <laughs> this is why I don't write action-adventure movies, Lonnie, because it's all going to come down to, like, the it's library. It's all going to come down to who came out first on the research <laughs> paper. All right, Kelly Jones, here we are. Love what you love. What do you love? Uh, the only thing I love from this movie is the end, um, mm -hmm. because you have the Ark in its crate being loaded into storage with what seems to be hundreds of other magical crates, and yeah. that's really cool, and I want to know if Pandora's box is in there. Yeah, the world building is pretty cool. Um, yeah. You know, I got my own Dr. Jones. That's what I love about this movie, <laughs> that I got Dr. Jones. I don't need Indiana. I got Dr. Jones. That's right. <laughs> So for everyone who is still with us and has not turned off the podcast while we were setting things on fire, to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. You can also follow all of our shows and news at Chipperish. HowStoryWorks and everything Chipperish Media does is made free to all by our generous patrons. If you're getting value out of this discussion, we ask that you help us by kicking a dollar or two a month our way so we can keep finding a new adversary so close to our own level. 
<laughs> this episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. That's right. I did not ask you to buy a mattress or try a mailbox service because of these people. So thank you to our January producers, Shelly, Kristen, Jonathan, Rose, Erica, Alice, Abigail, and Sarah. And this week's special message for our power producers, there's a big snake in the plane, Jock. Stuff is happening for our Patreon supporters, Lonnie, and I released our discussion of the Queen's Gambit for all patrons. $5 and up supporters get access to Lonnie's new video podcast with Ian Martin from Passion of the Nerd, Let's Watch Roulette where they roll a random movie or TV show, watch it, and then react. And our $10 and up supporters get to hang out and watch while we record and chat with us afterwards. So if you're not a Chipper supporter yet, now is definitely the time to start. We will be back next time with our discussion of Knives Out. Until then, snakes! Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs>